Welcome to another edition of the Powers on Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Powers, down here in Tampa, Florida. Very wet and rainy Tampa, Florida this week. The week of July the 24th. Lots of rain down here as we hit the dog days of summer. School's about to get started here in a couple more weeks. We've got high school football practice starting next Monday, the 29th, here down in Tampa. Lots of anticipation for that. we got NFL training camp starting this week. Most college teams will report back to campus the first week of August to get going with their college practices. So football is definitely in the air, and we will discuss the state of the NFL college here tonight on the podcast. We're also going to talk a decent amount about our Major League Baseball. we got the trade deadline coming middle of next week on July 31st. We got some very interesting pennant races developing, some races that we thought weren't going to be so so close and all of a sudden have become a little tighter. We're also going to talk a little, again, NFL training camps. There's some holdout situations we're going to discuss. We're going to talk a little college football. Not a lot of buzz going into the 2019 season from all uh, accounts. Haven't seen much as we approach the season. So many People are just a foregone conclusion that they think it's going to be Alabama-Clemson again. Are there other teams out there that can make a, a definite some noise this year to make it a worthwhile college campaign for us to pay attention to? Or is it just a foregone conclusion that it's going to be Alabama-Clemson? Pac-12 with an interesting idea of, the idea of moving up games to 9 a.m. West Coast time, starting games at 9 a.m. out on the West Coast for a little more national exposure. So a good array of things we're going to discuss tonight. And again, uh, down here in Tampa, we got uh, the Buccaneers reported at training camp on Thursday, and they get going. I was going to go to practice uh, on Friday, but my plans have changed a little bit, so I'm not going to be able to do that. And again, just rain, da- rain days after rain days. I know the, the heat was a major factor up in the East Coast in the last week or so. Tons of rain down here, and hopefully everybody's uh, okay through the heat and everything, and getting through the dog days of summer. So let's, and we're also going to mention a little British Open. We're going to actually start with the British Open first. One Shane Lowry, a countryman from Ireland. The tournament was hosted in Northern Ireland for the first time in about sixty since 1951 at Port North. Yeah, North Port, Northern Portrush course up in Northern Ireland. Shane Lowry, the the Irishman, takes care of business on his home course. Shot a 63 on Saturday in the third round, which kind of distanced himself from the field. The weather got to be pretty miserable on Sunday, so nobody really got ever got super close to Shane. He ended up winning by I believe four shots. I think the lead at one point got down to three, and it kind of ballooned up to like six or seven at one point, and then it ended up and ended up on three or four shot victory for one Shane Lowry, his first ever major, a glorious moment for the people of Ireland. A couple 
themes from the British Open one one was one Tiger Woods failed to make the cut. I think he he had a very revealing press conference where he really kind of opened up for the really the first one of the first times and really was giving the the reporters and the us the public the true sense of kind of where his body is now at the age of 43 following all the surgeries about how his body is just in a state where he really has to manage it day to day in order to get himself prepared to even practice and such and kind of his body is kind of what is letting him down here more than his desire to play i think his desire to play is is high but he's just has to be very careful with managing his body and basically it's he understands that he only has so many swings left in his body before it's going to be done. So he's really trying to manage his schedule and all that stuff. And it's a fine line of managing your schedule but versus not playing enough to be sharp when you do play. So I think one thing Tiger's going to do is take a little time off here as we head into the fall season and try to play uh, here in the, in the during the FedEx Cup. And such. All the majors are now final and finished for the year. Uh, the new schedule this year in the PGA Tour, they moved all the majors kind of within a one-month period of each other, starting with the Masters, you the uh, PGA, the U.S. Open, and then the British Open. And most people enjoyed it. I think that most the reason behind that is they wanted to get all the majors and such done with prior to the college football season started because the once the fall starts college football and pro football really dominate the TV landscape and they wanted to get all that the, the big majors out of the way before that. You also have the US Open tennis tournament coming up in the fall. So a lot of stuff going on in, in you know late August mid through September we got the baseball playoffs and such. So the PGA is trying to move up some of their uh, big events, marquee events in order to, to get more, a little more TV coverage. But no Tiger Woods in the mix. The British, Phil Mickelson not in the mix. Rory McIlroy, who was is the home was the hometown hero from that Port Rush area, really uh, he ballooned to like a seventy, I believe it was seventy nine in the first round, eight over par. He had an eight on the first hole of the tournament. Shot a great six under par 60, uh, 65 in round two, but did not make the cut. So very disappointing for Rory. I know he had been, you know, this was obviously a special event for him being in his hometown in Northern Ireland. First time in since 1951 that they'd been back to, to Northern Ireland for a British Open. So disappointing week for, for, for uh, Rory. But I, you give him credit. He took his medicine with the media. He answered every question and all that, which, which was good, good to see. But Shane Lowry, congratulations, Shane Lowry. Brooks Kepka, another quality appearance. I believe he finished fourth. You imagine this year for the majors for Brooks finished first, second, second, fourth. Clearly the number one player in the world when it comes to major championships in the last probably three years. But he has to start playing better in some of these normal tour events in order to become a you know considered an all-time great in my opinion. Not playing, not ever being in the mix in these normal week-to-week -week tournaments, and just theoretically trying to play well four weeks a year to me is not the not the uh the make of a of, a, of an all-time great so the all-time great played well week to week to week and obviously they took up their level another notch during the majors and i think kepkin really needs to focus on doing that a little bit more um 
I don't think he's playing a ton of tournaments, which is fine. But you have to, when you do play these non-major tournaments, you have to you have to put in the effort and the time and, and, and the practice that's needed to, to be competitive in those as well. So, but again, congratulations, Shane Lowry. The FedEx Cups coming up uh, will be coming up in August, September. So you'll see some some of that kind of stuff. So that'll be interesting to see how how Tiger Woods responds to that. If he's is a factor in any of those, obviously you have. Uh, Kepka, Dustin Johnson, those kind of guys, McElroy will be in the mix, John Rahm, all the all the the big player, the younger Justin Thomases, Jordan Spieth, those kind of guys will all be in the mix there. So, so that is kind of the scene with the golf world. Now, Major League Baseball. First off, I want to give a shout out to. Tampa's own Pete Alonzo for winning the Home Run Derby back in July, back in Cleveland earlier in the month. Pete is a Tampa Plant, Tampa Plant High School product from here in Tampa, went on to play at Florida, doing great things for the New York Mets, playing first base for them. He's a rookie, had a tremendous, has had a tremendous year, well over 30 home runs. Kind of a guy that I won't say it's come out of nowhere, but people were not anticipating Pete Alonso being a such a big player at such an early stage of his career. Put on a great show at the at the Home Run Derby. Outlasted Vlad Guerrero, who got into a epic showdown with Jock Peterson. So, I think, uh, Pete Alonso was a little bit of a recipient on the end of that. I think they went to Guerrero and Peterson went to like double overtime in the Home Run Derby, which required many more swings and such and but Vlad Guerrero had a great home run derby and kind of a coming out party for his his name individually as a brand Vlad Jr. playing for the Blue Jays but Pete Alonzo great congratulations to Alonzo home run derby pennant races are in full force now we have the trade deadline coming Wednesday the 31st of July remember there will be no August waiver trades like there have been in for the last nth number of years. No more August trades, just one trade deadline, August 31st. Basically, you you gotta go with what you got come, come August 1. There's no more trades, no more waiver claims, all that good stuff. So it's gonna be very interesting the next four or five days, what these teams do. Do teams go for it? Do they not go for it? You got a lot of teams that are on the periphery of the wild card race. A team like the Giants, who have come out of nowhere the last three weeks. Had no chance three weeks ago, and now they they went on a huge run. Now they're in the mix for the wild card. Do you, do you go for it and try to acquire players, or do you or do you unload your your, your players to be? You got Madison Bumgarner who's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. You have a couple other guys that would drive would would bring back some nice assets to your organization. Basically, remember, wild card teams are playing a one-game scenario, a one-game play-in game. So if you're, so again, if you're a if you're a team on the fringe, San Francisco, Oakland, you know, uh, the Rays, Tampa Bay Rays, those kind of teams. Do you sell your soul to get to to get to a one-game playoff, or do you, or do you try to play both sides of it? Do you try to acquire a player or two and then unload a guy or two that that you know you don't need. Or do you dump, or do you dump your your assets that you have that are going to become free agents in order to acquire more assets as we move forward? Some very interesting decisions for the San Francisco Giants. Again, most people don't believe they can make it. 
but they've gotten they've gone on such a big run. They're now one or two games out of the wild card with basically two months to go. And again, the big names you're hearing out of San Francisco is Madison Bumgarner. You're hearing Will Smith, the closer. They've got a couple, uh, Sam Dyson. They've got you know some relief pitchers who would bring back some assets because so many of these teams, established playoff teams, are in, in dire need of relief pitching. The relief pitching now, you know, this year especially is 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 in an, almost an all-time high demand. You know, so many teams are taking the philosophy of just trying to get their starters through five, maybe six innings, and turning it over to the bullpen. And with so many these teams with prolific uh, batting lineups, the Yankees, the Braves, the Dodgers, the Astros, the Twins. The, the, the relief pitcher is such a vital cog to be able to get those last nine outs. So these relief pitchers from all these obscure teams that are out of it are going to be in very high demand as we move to, closer to Wednesday. You also have a couple other big-name starters that are that are potentially uh, in the mix. you got Zach Wheeler from the Mets, and reports have, are, are coming out of New York that the Mets are very interested in trading Noah Syndergaard before the trade deadline. He's the one guy, him and Bumgarner, I think, are the two starting pitchers that will be able to bring back a big haul for a team. You know, if you're going to trade Syndergaard, if you're the Mets, you have got to get at least one major league-ready player and two big-time prospects back for Syndergaard. Syndergaard's still under contract for another couple years. So so they are, uh, the team acquiring him would still have his, have his rights for a couple years at minimum. So the Mets are going to definitely get a big haul back in return if they do decide to trade Syndergaard. I think Syndergaard to the Braves, Syndergaard to the Twins would be a great fit. Uh, Those teams definitely need starting pitchers. Uh, Again, uh, other names that you're hearing, possibly Trevor Bauer for the Indians, uh, possibly Corey Kluber, you got Zach Wheeler, you got Madison Bumgarner. You're you're not hearing a lot of you're not hearing a lot of chatter about hitters, which is surprising. Normally you hear some chatter about three or four big time hitters that could be on the move from from down teams. One name you are, you will probably hear as as we get closer to next week, and the deadline will be Jose Abreu from the from the White Sox. From all indications, he would be a great fit down here in Tampa. The, the Rays are de- in desperate need of some hitting, um, especially at first base. So don't be surprised if a guy like Abreu gets, is, becomes a rental for the Rays for, the, for a stretch drive. I think a team like the Red Sox are in the knee, are in the mark, could be in the market for a low-end starting pitcher, maybe some relief help as well. Uh, but, you know, teams like the Yankees, Twins, Astros, tw- uh, you know, Dodgers don't need hitting. they got plenty of hitting, deep lineups, but they need help on the back end. You know, the Dodgers, for example, definitely need some help for Kenley Jansen in the bullpen, some some setup help, and potentially a, an alternate closer. Uh, the Yankees are going to be in the market for a starter, most likely. Their their bullpen is pretty strong, but their starting pitching is, is, is average at best, and that's being kind. Uh, Tanaka got shelled last night in Fenway, giving up seven runs in the first inning and 12 runs overall. CC Sabathia... J.A. Happ, Herman, Severino still on the disabled list. They definitely are in the when the market will and they will get a uh, starting pitcher. Many t- many people have Marcus Stroman from the Blue Jays linked to the Yankees going into next week. I 
severely doubt the Yankees and the Mets would ever come together on a trade for Syndergaard because of the the you know the proximity and the and the media attention and the and the and the they're fighting for the back page kind of stuff with the newspapers. I don't ever think the Mets and Yankees would make that kind of trade with that big a name. Um, it would require probably the Yankees to get a, give up uh, Glaber Torres and probably somebody else, to be honest with you. And I don't think the Yankees would do that at this point. But again, names you're going to hear from a relief, relief pitching perspective. You're going to hear Tyler Yates from San Diego. You're going to hear Will Smith from the Giants. You're going to hear potentially Vasquez from the Pittsburgh Pirates. You're going to hear Michael Gibbons from the Orioles, somebody like that. You're going to hear uh, middle relievers, setup guys, things like that is who you're going to hear from these lower-end teams. You're going to hear maybe Ian Kennedy from the, from the Kansas City Royals, somebody that's had some success as a closer. You could see him being a setup guy for one of these teams. But again, Atlanta – needs relief pitching. The Dodgers need relief pitching desperately. And the Braves need somebody in the in the bullpen. Uh, the Twins need desperately need some relief pitching. And then again, you have starter needs for starters is probably the Yankees in Houston. Um, I think a team like Cleveland's going to probably play both sides of the fence. I think they're going to if they could get a big a huge haul for Trevor Bauer, they might do that. But they also could be in the market for some low-end, uh, cheaper uh, relief options, something just to help a little bit on the on the back end. But I don't think a team like Cleveland or Boston are going to go head over heels to try to sell their soul. Maybe Cleveland, because their window is kind of closing with, with Lindor and Bauer approaching free agency very soon. So if you're Cleveland, maybe you go one big run and try to make a move and try to go, go for it. The question is, can you beat – you have to you have to remember the wild card winners are going to have to the winner of the wild card is most likely going to play the Yankees and then you're probably going to have the winner of the central probably playing the Houston Astros in a five game series so you have to think to yourself can we match up with the Yankees or the Astros in a five game series those two teams are locks to win their division um it's the you know the central and the wild card is going to be the one up for grabs the central race has all of a sudden become a race Minnesota had a huge lead a month ago, up 10 games, and Cleveland's gone on a big run and got within three now. And obviously you have uh, – so, the, so the, the loser of that uh, central race is going to be square in the wild card race. You got the the, the Rays and the, and the Red Sox are right there in the wild card race, and you also have the Oakland A's. So you probably have four teams in the American League going for two spots. So that'll be an interesting race. Uh, and in the National League, you're going to have a you have a boatload of teams. You have uh, pretty much the Dodgers are going to win their division. You have a huge battle in the center between the Cubs, Milwaukee, and St. Louis. And then you have a battle in the east between the Braves and the Nationals. The Braves have about a four or five game lead on the Nationals. Most would think the Braves are going to win that division. So you're thinking if you're the Nationals or the Phillies that you're fighting for a wild card spot. So you got those two wild cards. You have the two losers in the central, either Milwaukee, St. Louis, or Chicago. Those two losers will be in the wild card race. So, again, you have about four or five teams. The Giants are in the west, out west in, in the wild card hunt. So you probably have five teams in the National League vying for two spots as well. So, this will be, again, one of the, the interesting trade deadlines. We'll see how, how these general managers react, only having one, one opportunity to improve or unload their players. 
And the thought is, do you go for it or do you unload and, and rebuild? And again, the two teams with probably the biggest question marks on those are probably San Francisco and I would say, to me, the Minnesota Twins have to make that decision. Do you go for it? Do you try to go get a big pitcher and a big reliever? Because that's what you need. you got a great hitting team, but you got to have a, some, some pitching and you're starting pitching. If you didn't see the other night, you had a – we had a, one probably the funnest game that I've probably watched in a few years. The Yankees and the Twins played an incredible 14-12 to 12 game, 10-inning 10 10 game in Minneapolis. You had a – the Twins jumped out to a huge lead, 8-2 lead. The Yankees chipped away to 8-5, to 8-7. To to the Yankees ended up taking the lead in the eighth inning, 9-8. On a dubious, uh, you had some dubious umpiring. You had some some tremendous hitting, uh, a couple loose balls and strike calls, which allowed the Yankees to prolong their big inning. They scored five runs in the eighth inning to go up nine eight, and then the Twins came back in the bottom of the eighth and hit a mammoth. Mohamed Sanu hit a mammoth two run homer to put him up in the in the in the eighth. Going to the ninth, and then the Yankees with two outs in the ninth, nobody on, draw draw a walk, and Aaron Hicks hits a dramatic home run in the in the top of the ninth with two outs. The Yankees go to the bottom of the ninth up 10-9, and somehow Araldis Chapman comes in and walks the walks the world, can't throw a strike to save his life. Somehow he gets out of the inning with the game still tied. And the Yankees go on to win in extra innings, 14 to 12, in just a classic, in a classic ending. Minnesota has two bases loaded, and got and Kepler for the Twins hits a ball in the gap, and Aaron Hicks it makes a diving, game-saving catch on the warning track. Doesn't make the catch. The game's over. The Twins will win the game with the bases loaded. Tremendous game again. If you're if you're a you're a fan of baseball, that's. That's the kind of game that you remember for a long time. It's just had all the elements, not very good pitching, suspect umpiring, great hitting, timely, dramatic hitting, and he had some two or three tremendous defensive plays as well. So I don't watch a ton of baseball games from start to finish, but I did watch that one, which didn't get over until about 1.20 in the morning Eastern time. So I did watch that one from about the seventh inning on. What are your thoughts of these games lasting forever? I mean, these some of these games are lasting four, five, six hours. I mean, uh, there was a game that lasted till about 4.30 in the morning Eastern time last night out on the West Coast, Anaheim, the Angels versus Baltimore. You had the Yankees-Minnesota game. You've had some, you know, you've had other games, Red Sox-Yankees game that have been lasting four and a half, five hours. My thoughts are two things that I think ought to be probably something Major League Baseball could do. One, one, three ideas, three things that I uh, that, that are going to help that would help things. One, it would save save some pitching from these bullpens having to get so overtaxed. One, if I would play, I'd have a run rule after the seventh inning. Is a t- if a team is up, you know, eight runs or more after the seventh inning, call the game. What what, what is it? What are the percentages of a team coming back in the eighth or ninth inning down eight runs? One percent, at best. Why not call the game if a team's up eight plus runs after the seventh inning? Call the game. 
saves you two innings of bullpen relief. It saves you two innings of possibly throwing out a non-pitcher as a as a, a, a positional player as a pitcher. We don't need to see the backup catcher, the, the fifth outfielder, going out there and throwing 75-mile-an-hour balls over the plate. Nobody wants to see that. It's going to prevent guys from getting hurt. The fans don't want to see it. The TV, nobody's watching TV when these guys are in the game, when it's 16-2, to when it's 10-1. to Call the game after the seventh inning. Team's up eight runs after the seventh inning. Let's go home. The, the, the probability of a comeback is, is probably 1% or less. Shame on us for burning up two more innings of relief pitchers, arms, all that kind of th- stuff. Idea number two for me, all Sunday games should be seven-inning games. Make all Sunday games seven-inning games. One, you're going to save two more innings of relief every week. Over the course of a 25-week season, that's 50 or 60 innings a year that you're saving on your on your relief staff. Two, helps with the travel. Gets teams in and out of town a little bit quicker, faster. Three, every team's always going to play on Sunday, so there's no going to be no advantage for a team that's going to be off on a Sunday or anything like that. So seven-inning games on Sundays. All Sunday games are seven-inning games. It'll be better for TV. The Sunday night game would get over sooner. You could still start the game. You're going up against, you know, you still have a game in prime time, but make this all Sunday games seven-inning games. And three, extra innings. After the we'll play we'll play the tenth inning like normal. No 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 different uh, scenarios at going through the tenth inning. But once we get after the tenth inning of an extra inning game, starting in the eleventh inning, we're going to put a man on second base with nobody out. That way, that'll speed up the offense, get some runs scored, which will most which will virtually end the game. In most scenarios, we'll end the game in that inning. So we don't need to have 15, 16 inning games in the middle of July, middle of uh, June. That are that do, again do nothing but blow out your bullpens, put more people in danger. Again, the crowd, the, the fans aren't staying till till the fourteenth, fifteenth inning. The, the crowds are down to the hundreds when you get to that stage of the game. People aren't watching TV in the fifteenth, sixteenth inning. Let's figure out a way to get these games over with. And starting in the eleventh inning, let's put a man on second base, nobody out, and go from there. That way, there'll be some strategy involved, and to get the game moving. So those are my three ideas to speed up the action. Eight run, eight run, run rule after the seventh inning. All Sunday games make them seven inning games. Again, you minor leagues do it. College te- college games do it. Increase speed up the travel. Better for TV. Everybody's on the same playing field. Sunday games. The, the, the heat is usually not is more of a factor on Sunday because they're all usually daytime games anyway. You're out in the sun less. Two innings left of, of, of usage for your for your bullpen. And three, put a man on second base starting in the 11th inning. So those are my three uh, remedies to the length of these games. Obviously, once we get to the playoffs, we have to play out the game like it's normally. We can't. We, we these are all regular season uh, situations only. We would in all, in the in any postseason games, all games would be played nine innings, and would be played till till there's a winner. So we would not have any special extra inning rules either. So, uh, you know, my other again, we'll talk talk about my overtime rule for football here in a second. But uh, those would be my remedies for speeding up the action a little bit, especially in the regular season. So again, big big deadline, July thirty first. 
Hopefully your team's going to make a move. Your team's probably either going to be selling or buying. One of the more fascinating couple days of the year, the day leading up to the trade deadline, there'll be a lot of moves, a lot of prospects getting moved, a lot of big prospects will be getting moved as well. So um, make a trade, Tampa Bay. Go get you some Abreu and some help. Let's go make a run at this thing. My gosh. But look for the Braves to be active. A lot of, lot of uh, minor league uh, prospects to deal with. Look for the uh, Dodgers and Yankees to be active. I, I think you'll see Houston be active, and I think you'll see the Twins be active. So look out for those four or five teams to really make a, some, some, some moves to fortify their teams for, the, uh, for October. All right, so the NFL, the National Football League, training camps have begun. All 32 teams have reported for training camp. Are you a fan of training camp? I got to admit, I do like, I do, the younger I was, I used to love going to training camp. They used to have training camp at the University of Tampa down here. All the practices were open to the public. It's not that way anymore for the Bucks. The Bucks practice at their facility, so all the practices are not open. But they do have a decent amount of practices open to the public. I used to love to go to training camp to watch watch the guys. It's much different than it was when I was little as far as the contact and the amount of tackling and full pads and all that stuff. Uh, much less full contact in these practices, but it is always fun to go out to practice to see the fourth-string cornerback versus the, the, the third-string wide receiver and some of those kind of bottom-of-the-roster guys that you see starting that you wonder, man, can that guy make the team or is that guy good enough to do this or – Who's going to win the starting job at right guard? You know, who's going to win the kicking job? So those are always fun things for me to do when I go to these practices. It's, you know, and you get to see your star players. You know, you get to see your star players up close. Usually there's, there's some autograph opportunities and things like that. So if you're in a football city, definitely recommend trying to go to a practice. Preseason games will be starting here in the, you know, first seven or eight days in August. Preseason will be starting, and then before you know it, we'll be at the regular season, the, the four preseason games. Remember, your, your team, all teams are carrying 90 guys, and they only have to make one cut after the third, I, I believe it's after the third regular season game. They have to cut down to 53. So pretty much all the people are going to stay on the roster. Actually, I think it's after the fourth regular season preseason game that they have to make the cuts to 53. So you're going to see 90 guys on the roster all the way throughout training camp, all these preseason games. Uh, you won't see your, you know, most of your starters will play a couple series in the first game. They'll play maybe into the second quarter in the second game. The third game, they'll probably play till halftime for most of the, most teams. And then your fourth game, you will not see, you'll virtually see none of your big starting players playing. Your quarterback usually never plays in any of your elite Wide receiver, running back kind of guys typically don't play in that fourth preseason game. That's typically the game where you see all the bottom of the roster decisions get made. You know, your backup cornerbacks, your offensive linemen, uh, your back, your special teams guys. Those are those. That's the game where those guys get to showcase their skills to see who who makes the team, who makes the practice squad, and who and who who gets cut outright. You will see a lot of trades in the preseason as well. Typically, teams make trades. So probably about the second or third week, you'll see some trades. Other big storyline with training camp, holdouts. 
you got several big name holdouts that are that are underway here now and guys looking for new contracts you got big big drama in Dallas with Zeke Elliott and Dak Prescott who were the Cowboys going to pay first Zeke is a holdout here in camp Dak did report to camp for the Cowboys but Zeke is a holdout my my view on this whole Zeke Elliott situation I think Zeke will you, you won't see Zeke till about after the third preseason game with about 10 days to go in the regular season I think that's when you'll see if they if there's not a new deal done with Zeke you Zeke who has two years left on this contract you will not see Zeke Elliott I don't believe until at minimum the, after the third preseason game as you head into the fourth game if he decides to come I don't think Zeke's going to sit out uh games during the regular season uh i think you'll you'll, you'll kind of have an understanding that zeke will come back to camp middle of the between the third and fourth after the third game and before the fourth uh preseason game you'll see zeke report to give himself eight or eight to ten days to get ready for the season opener is what i think what you're going to see with with zeke um melvin gordon out in san diego sounds like that's a different situation sounds like he is preparing himself to hold out he is in the last year of his contract the option year, a little bit different from Zeke Elliott. So Gordon is in the last year. Again, I don't I don't think San Diego is going to, or LA, the LA Chargers, excuse me. I don't think the LA Chargers are going to break the bank for Melvin Gordon. I think they're going to try to get him at, you know, sounds like he wants $13, $14 million. I think if, if I would tell Melvin Gordon, here's $10 million a year, take it or leave it and see what he says. Because, again, that San Diego offense has always been pretty good with running backs, using a variety of different guys. you got Eckler there. They've always been able to find running backs to, to, to perform very well. Plus, they like to throw the ball in San Diego. The other big holdout is Mike Thomas in New Orleans. Sounds like they're fairly close to make possibly a, a, an extension. He's only making a million bucks this year. He's the kind of guy that definitely would deserve a big, big raise. Now, do I make him the highest paid receiver in the NFL? I do not. Um, he's a very, very, very good player, but I'm not paying that guy more than about $17, $18 million a year. I'm not paying him more than, than I paid Odell Beckham. I'm not paying him uh, $20 million a year. There's no way for, for Mike Thomas. Again, fair, equitable, $17, $18 million, four or five-year extension. You know, 40 or $50 million of that is up, probably guaranteed, would be guaranteed money. I'm okay with that, but I'm not paying him top-of-the-line, top receiver in the league dollar because he's not the best receiver in the league. He's a very good receiver, very good for that team. But again, New Orleans is going to have to pay Kamara here pretty soon. Drew Brees is making big money. You know, uh, again, I would, I, if, as long as Thomas is willing to take a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, a less than top dollar, then I think the Saints and him will have a deal done. He is holding out, so I don't think. But I think you'll see Mike Thomas in the next week and a half or so. He'll be back in, in in camp. And the other big decision is: Do the Cowboys pay Dak Prescott now in the preseason, or do you make Dak play it out during the regular season? And what is the priority and order of of, of of who you pay in Dallas? Do you pay Zeke first? Do you pay Dak first? I think it's pretty clear that Amari Cooper would be the third guy in line to get paid. All three of those guys are due here either this year or next year. Um, Dak and Amari's contract technically run out at the end of this year. I think you'll see Amari come to an agreement probably at some point during the regular season, whereas what I think would happen with Amari. 
He's a, you know, they traded a first-round draft pick to the Raiders for him, so I don't think they're going to let Amari just walk out the door. Plus, he's the number one option that they desperately need on the outside. I think they're going to get all three eventually signed, but I think it's going to go Prescott first, Elliott second, and then Amari Cooper will get his his money uh, at, the, at the end. You also have to remember Dallas is going to have to pay Jalen Smith. They're going to have to pay Byron Jones. Uh, they just paid uh, Demarcus Lawrence, so I, it would not shock me is to see the, the the casualties of this is going to be the offensive line in Dallas. I think you're going to see at the end of this year, one or two of those guys either get restructured, released, or tr- potentially traded. They have a very good offensive line. You got Tyron Smith. You got uh, Zach Martin. You got Frederick. So you got a lot of you got a lot of resources invested in that offensive line. So I could see at the end of this year. One of those guys at least getting moved and or restructured to, to be, because again, these are all big money contracts. You're going to have to pay Elliott, Prescott, Amari Cooper, Byron Jones, Jalen Smith coming up here soon. So big, big doings in Dallas. We'll see what Jerry is able to finagle. He's always been pretty good with the salary cap, moving money around. So again, we've interested to see who they, who they decide they want to pay first. From a local perspective, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers get going here. Got the new new era with Bruce Arians. Again, big expectations coming out of coming out of with Jameis Winston and in, in his kind of option year of his contract. A lot of people think that Arians will be very good for Jameis. Uh, big questions are on defense for the Buccaneers. You know, you got the back seven, uh, the pass rush. You got no JPP. Gerald McCoy has moved on to the Carolina Panthers. Can Sue, Vea, and the transition to the 3-4 defense, can Todd Bowles turn that defense around and at least make them middle of the pack to where the offense doesn't have to score 35 points every week? I think the Bucks will be very good on offense. I think Winston will be good enough. Very good wide receiving core, very good tight ends. A solid enough running attack with Peyton Barber and Ronald Jones. But they've got to find some help in the secondary. you got uh, the corners are to be determined of who's going to play and what roles and also on the defensive line. So Todd Bowles, if, if Todd Bowles can be what he's been as a defensive coordinator and get the Bucks in the top 15, I think the Bucks will have a chance to surprise because I do think they will score points with Bruce Arians. You have to keep the turnovers to a minimum with Winston. Uh, again, it's kind of a make, I would say make or break year, but a super important year for Jameis. Uh, He's in, the, he's in the option year of his contract. If he does have a good year, the Bucks have the ability to still franchise him if they want, franchise tag him if they want, or they can sign him to a, to a uh, big extension. I do not see the Bucks giving Jameis Winston $80, $90 million in guaranteed money, given his, uh, you know, his, his, his incidents that he's had in the past. I think if Winston has a good year this year, they will franchise tag him and make him prove it again a second time. So, before they give him a huge extension. So those are the kind of the, the rumblings out of Tampa. And obviously the other big th- positional battle in Tampa is at the kicking position. Got to find a reliable kicker. They drafted a kid out of Utah. They've also got uh, Cairo, Egypt, my man, Cairo Santos, the, er, the, 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 the Arab Spring, Arab Rising. Who's going to win the job? Santos versus Matt Gay. Um, 
again, the Bucks have just had a revolving door of kickers the last seven or eight years. Haven't been able to get it right from Aguayo to, to Connor Barth to uh, Patrick Murray to Santos to Kyle Brinza. Just lots of guys have revolved in and out of one buck place at the kicking position. So that will be a, a major point of contention this, this uh, preseason for them. So we'll see how that goes. College football will be getting going here in about a week or so. Most college teams will report that at the end of the first week in August. Not a lot of buzz this offseason. I think there's been some uh, malaise with the whole Alabama-Clemson kind of foregone conclusion that those two are kind of set up to, to have a fifth meeting in the college football and that they are clearly the two best team programs in the country and kind of everybody there's a big gap between those two and everybody else. Um, who's going to threaten Alabama-Clemson? You know, you have Georgia, you have Notre Dame, you have Oklahoma, Ohio State, Michigan. All those teams have big questions to answer. Um, I would say Georgia's probably on the brink. They've given Alabama fits the last couple of years. They've beaten them once. Um, Kirby Smart has really done a great job building that program. You got some returning guys. You got Jake Fromm back for his junior year. You got a big running back. Pretty good defense. Great offensive line returns in Athens. Just a matter of can Georgia navigate to get to the SEC title game, and can they can they put can they put them away Alabama when they had them on the brink? They've had Alabama on the brink a couple times, had them down ten points at halftime in the fourth quarter last year, and Tua brought them back from the brink. All credit to Tua. Tua though did get exposed when he played the better defenses, both Georgia and Clemson was very shaky in those games. He's he's dominated the lesser lesser defensive opponents, but he's had issues when he's had a when he's played a, a competent defense. So one thing you'll hear all this year is about how Tua will react when he has to play a big defense. But again, Alabama's loaded on offense, big time receiving core, Tua always loaded at running back. Can the Alabama defense put it together and be able to Make stops. Huge issues last year making stops when they played, again, good offensive teams. Georgia lit them up. Clemson lit them up. Uh, lots of lots of activities and in the, in the, lots of problems on the defensive end in the, in the playoff game. Um, again, Oklahoma, new quarterback Jalen Hurts, the transfer from Alabama. A lot of people think he's going to have a big year. Ohio State has a new, new quarterback in Justin Fields, who was a Highly touted recruit that went to Georgia last year and transferred to Ohio State and is eligible to play immediately. Lots of talk out of Ann Arbor. Is this the year Harbaugh and Michigan get it done? No Urban Meyer in Columbus. Harbaugh talking some smack at Media Day, Big Ten Media Day. A lot of people think Michigan has a chance to be really good this year. But those are, again, not a lot of buzz. You know, Heisman Trophy-wise, probably a Tua and Trevor Lawrence race to begin with. Uh, for sure, and then one or two other guys will probably emerge. Maybe a Jake Fromm, maybe a DeAndre Swift kind of guy will emerge as the season develops, but definitely the clear two favorites are Tua and Trevor Lawrence. Um, the Pac-12 experimenting with 12 o'clock Eastern time kickoffs would be 9 a.m. on the West Coast. Coaches out there are tired of playing that 10.30 at night Eastern game to where, again, nobody's watching at 1 o'clock in the morning on the, in the Midwest and the East Coast. 
when when Washington State's playing uh, Oregon or when Washington State, you know, when Washington's playing Colorado or USC's playing, you know, Arizona State at 10:30 at night, just not a lot of publicity for the Pac-12. So their commissioner is 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 has floated the idea that seems to have some support by their coaches about possibly playing at 9 a.m. in the morning, which would be 12 on the East Coast. Again, the two big college football windows during the day are 12 o'clock and 3.30. 3.30 is usually dominated by the SEC, CBS, SEC game, the big SEC game of the week, and typically ABC, ESPN has their big game at 3.30 as well. And then you also have the primetime ESPN game at 7.30, which is not a Pac-12 game. So in order for the Pac-12 to get some more national exposure, they've got to be willing to do some alternate things time-wise. And it wouldn't surprise me if this is a way to do that. Again, appreciate you listening to the Powers on Sports podcast. If you have any comments, send us a note at KickTheFB on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Have a great week. See you on the next episode of the Powers on Sports podcast.